uh, the epistle of Jude. It's just 25 verses, but we tonight will just read uh, the first four. So if you would stand, please, and we'll read uh, God's word tonight, the epistle of Jude, and we're beginning to read at verse 1. Amen. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, and called, mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would bless your word, speak to our hearts, quicken it to as we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's take our seats together. Amen. We're going to look at this little book of Jude over the coming weeks, and uh, just by way of introduction tonight um, into this, it's an amazing letter. It really is very profound if you've had the opportunity to read it. Uh, those 25 verses over the last couple of days, you will see that it, it, it really, for its shortness, but its impact, its detail, and its potency in what it is dealing with largely, I don't believe there's any other epistle that is so clear and so potent concerning false doctrine and uh, false prophets and teachers. It's quite forthright uh, in the letter. But just as an introduction, we'll talk tonight about the importance of a sound doctrine, sound doctrine, sound biblical teaching. And that really is at the very core of uh, Jude's writing. Uh, for you to know, Jude was writing this little letter around A.D. 70 to 80. And so what we know from that is that uh, Peter had already been martyred for the faith. He'd been crucified at Rome. Uh, we also know that Paul had also been martyred for the faith because he was a, a Roman citizen. He could not be crucified, so we believe that he was beheaded. And Nero, uh, that wicked man, had persecuted the church and the believers of Jesus Christ um, in the AD 60s uh, to the extent of some of his some of the brutality that the early church were facing. Uh, was just it's just unimaginable what they had to go through. And so it's in the context really of this we, we know Peter had passed because Jude actually quotes uh, from uh, Peter in the 17th and 18th verses. He writes, But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he's quoting from Peter when he says, How that they told you there would be mockers in the last time we should walk after their own ungodly lust. And so we know then that Jude is writing at a time after Peter had penned his letters and he had already been martyred for the faith. We also know something very significant had happened. The prophecies of Christ had began to be fulfilled concerning um, the end of that generation and as we lead into the last days. 
If you turn back, keep your finger on Jude, but go back into Matthew uh, chapter 24, um, that great chapter concerning the last days and the end times uh, when the disciples inquired of the Lord uh, concerning the, the last days, what will happen, what will be the signs, what are the indications of those times. One of the very specific things that the Lord spoke of concerning the temple is in Matthew 24 and verse 2. Jesus said unto them, <clears throat> See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And we know uh, from history that this scripture, this prophecy was fulfilled uh, in A.D. 70 when the Roman Empire completely destroyed Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, that the whole of that city was ransacked, the temple was completely destroyed. And so Jude is writing at a time, a very significant time for the early church because the apostles, there was only really, as far as we are aware, that it was most likely just John, uh, the apostle who was still alive. Most of the apostles had been martyred for the faith. The church had been uh, under severe persecution, um, particularly in Jerusalem, and was scattered. And persecution has always been uh, a positive thing for the church because the church grows at a time of opposition as it was spread, as the word began to be spread out and the persecution came. And so it's in uh, this decade of A.D. 70s that Jude is writing his letter uh, to the church. So it's important just to note the context of what he's, what he's saying, what he's writing from, what has happened uh, to the church of Jesus Christ. It is, faced, uh, it is facing one of the great empires of the world, the Roman Empire. It is being crushed in that sense and scattered and persecuted. But it's important to note that in the 25 verses of this little letter of Jude, that he never mentions once the Roman Empire, the political condition, uh, what, what, what is happening in Jerusalem. He mentions none of those things because what he knows and what we know is that not political systems or empires or kingdoms of this world, not even the powers of hell or the devil himself can defeat the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that is the hope that we have. You know, we're coming up to an extremely important, I believe, uh, an extremely important election in this country. It's a very critical election. I believe that we should vote. I believe that is correct, that we should exercise our vote. Uh, we're coming up to one. But whatever the outcome is on the 6th of May, Jesus Christ will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I want to encourage, I believe you should vote. I believe you should vote to, to anyone that is as close to what our convictions are based on God's word. In other words, they're pro-life. Not in name. Not in name only. Not just to get a vote and to get power, but they'll stand and they will do everything to defeat these laws that have been brought in. That they're for uh, traditional Christian family values. And so I wouldn't tell you what to vote. I'll not be in the booth with you when you vote. But I believe that's the most important things for us. That's our convictions. And that's what we should vote 
in line with that and we should exercise our vote. And you should challenge. We don't get anyone at our door. We're just too far out of the town for anyone to bother. But if they come to your door, make sure you ask the questions. But whatever happens, whoever's the first, joint first, deputy first, whatever way they want to call it, on the 6th of May, could I tell you something, friends? Jesus Christ is going to build His church. And that is the truth. In Matthew 16 and 18, Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, the gates of hell, the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. It's as true today as it was the days that those words came from the Lord's mouth. He's building His church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against him. Satan knows that he can never destroy the church. Do you know he knows that? He, he may attempt to hinder, to thwart, to come against in many different ways, but he knows he can never defeat the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the verses in Revelation chapter 1, if you want to turn back over, because we're going back into Jude and then into some of the verses in Revelation that shows us the importance of uh, sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. In Revelation chapter 1, we find the Apostle John who's been caught up in the Spirit in the Lord's day. And we see him there in verse 17 that he has fallen at the feet of Jesus like a dead man. What a picture. We see Christ and we see the Apostle on his face before the Lord. He had fallen before him as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me and he said, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. And Jesus says, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. I tell you, we get a vision of that tonight, friends. We know he's in control of everything. He is in control. He is supreme over all matters, all kingdoms, all governments, all rulers, Christ is reigning tonight and the gates of hell shall never prevail against the church. We see here in Jude, then if we go back into it, we see here that Jude is aware as the Holy Ghost comes upon him and presses him that it isn't the devil or demons or empires, or kingdoms, or political systems that can destroy the church. But he talks of doctrines and teachings that can creep in, and from within the church, not from the outside, but from within the church, can then contaminate the purity of that church, and subsequently, we see then through that that the church can lose its power and also the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ amongst them. Why does sound doctrine matter? Why is it important that there is, that there is biblical teaching and there is sound doctrine? Why does it matter? Well, if you turn over uh, in the Titus, we see there in Titus... Uh, 
chapter 1, just over into Titus chapter 1, we see this term that uh, Paul uses both there. He uses it four times in total, but twice in Titus. Uh, in Titus 1 and 9, uh, speaking of those that are the elders of the church, those that teach in the church, those that preach in the church, he says in Titus 1 and 9 that they should hold fast the faithful word, that is the word of God as he has been taught, and that he might be that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the, the gainsayers. The word sound simply means healthy, healthy. And the word doctrine is very simple. It just means instruction. And we find here that it is to exhort uh, from the word of God, God's word, to bring forth sound biblical teaching to the edification of, of the church of Jesus Christ. In Titus chapter 2, uh, verse 1, then he, he, he brings it forth again. He says, But speak thou the things which uh, become a sound doctrine. So we see the importance. I'm putting this in the context because I believe it's important. Uh, when you see Jude and his desire of what he's about to write to the church, his desire in, the, in, in his own heart was that I'm going to write to the church about the common salvation. That's, that's simply what he's saying is, I want to write to the church about the nature of salvation. That's a wonderful subject, how, how the Lord would save us, how he would keep us, how we're washed in the blood, how we're delivered from the power of darkness. What a subject that his desire was to speak to the church about. But when he went to write concerning the common salvation, we know that the Holy Ghost came upon him and changed the direction of what he wanted to write and impressed upon him what was the pressing issue of that time and of that hour. And it's as pressing as it was then, it's as pressing tonight in the 21st century church. It applies to our preaching. It applies to our lives, sound teaching, sound doctrine. It applies even to the very songs that we sing that it is biblically sound. It's crucial. It's not a question of new and old. It's a question of what is sound biblical teaching. And that's very important when we come to look at this. The importance of sound doctrine is found in the seven churches of the book of Revelation. You'll find it there that this is the Lord himself speaking. But if you turn over, I'm not going to go through a study in each church, but very quickly so that you see it. Turn in the Revelation chapter 2, what you'll read there and what you see, that first church was the church at Ephesus. And this is the Lord himself speaking to the church. And he says uh, to that church that has, was faithful, that labored, that there was many things that he could command concerning the church at Ephesus. But then he says in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because this church had lost its fervency or its love for the Lord. It once was fervent for the Lord. It once was passionate for the things of God and for Christ himself that loved him. But now they'd lost that love. They'd left their first love. Verse 5 says, then he says, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. And he says, Repent and do the first works, or else I will come quickly. And he says these words, and I will remove the candlestick out of this place. The candlestick, 
uh, of course we know, speaks of the presence of the Lord. That it was such a serious matter. The Lord, as He's speaking to the church, He's saying this is so, this is so important that we can have all the works of ministry, if you like. But He's saying if we have lost, this is the Lord saying this Himself to the church, if we have lost our first love, He's calling the church to a place of repentance or else He says that He will take the candlestick from the midst and that was the very presence of the Lord. Then he goes on to say in verse 6, but this, he says, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So here's a doctrine, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now their studies in themselves are the doctrine we'll see in a moment of Balaam. But the doctrine of the Nicolaitans largely, and it, does, it is associated with uh, the, the, the writings of Jude. It was a doctrine that... Um, basically was that men and women could be saved but could live their lives any way they want. That they were under grace, that they, could, that they were free. There was no claims of the cross in their life. There was, no, there was no requirement in any way or responsibility to live a holy life or a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And so these doctrines that were coming into the church, it's the Lord himself actually points these out in each of the churches. We know Smyrna was commended. Pergamus, if you look at Pergamus, is very interesting because again, we can see that it is actually the, the power of Satan or the seat of Satan where this church dwelt had no, no authority over the church. It was the church that was triumphant even at the very seat of Satan. If you look at Revelation 2, verse 13, and just read in there, it says, under the to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp uh, sword with two edges. I know thy works, and uh, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Here's a church that dwelt at Satan's seat. It's actually profound. I know we've uh, mentioned it before and taught on it before, but this was a literal seat. Uh, it is now currently... Um, uh, it had taken brick by brick over into the Berlin Museum. And it is now in a, a museum in Berlin. And this was a place where the bishop of Pergamos was actually martyred for his faith. They would take, the, the history books tell us this, but in the scripture it tells us that he was martyred. But the history books tell us that this faithful bishop, Antipas, was brought up. They had a large bull, bronze bull, with a, with a door at the bottom of it. And they placed that faithful man of God into that bull. They closed the door. They lit. They put a fire underneath the bull. And they roasted. They roasted the faithful servant of the Lord under that bull at the seat of Satan. It's probably significant also to note that in the Nuremberg rallies in the Second World War, Adolf Hitler had a replica who was a demonic man, had a replica of Satan's seat. And that's where you see those old pictures of the Nazis marching by and, and Hitler standing on a platform. He's actually standing on a replica of Satan's seat. And he was a demonic, I mean, he was a demonic man driven by hell. But there was a church in Pergamos at the seat of Satan that was triumphant. And what we see here is that even at the seat of Satan, the church, Jesus said, I will... 
build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. They were faithful. And so it says, even where Satan said is, thou holdest fast my name, thou hast not denied the faith. Even in those days wherein Antipas, my faithful martyr, who we mentioned, was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. In verse 14 then, the Lord speaks to the same church. So it's not going to be the powers of hell that defeat Pergamos. But the Lord then warns them. He says, but I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. So now the Lord is pointing out false doctrine in his church. In a church that can't be defeated by Satan. But a church that will be stripped of its authority and its power if it does not repent. Why? Because it's permitting false doctrine. The doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed on the idols, to commit fornication. And then he says, verse 15, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So we have this doctrine that's coming into the church at Pergamos, that you're saved, but you're free. And of course we're free. Praise the Lord. It's good to be free. We believe in that wonderful truth. But then there was a twist in that great liberty that Christ had made them free. And that was that there was no responsibility to live a life that was pleasing to the Lord. You can be saved and you can live any way you want. I want to tell you, friends, that's not something that was happening just back then. This is rampant today. This, these doctrines are very much alive and creeping in to the churches all across Northern Ireland all across the world. The doctrine of Balaam was people that were in it for something of themselves, something of their own satisfaction for monetary terms and so forth, that if you give, you'll get, and all this type of false teaching that is very rampant today in the church of Jesus Christ. And so the Lord points this out. He says, these are the things, what the Lord said, this is what the Lord said. He said, which thing I hate. Strong language, isn't it, really, from the Lord? Jesus says, I hate these things. And they're creeping into the church. So he calls the church of Pergamos to repent, or else I will come on to thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It's powerful language, really, isn't it? When you, This is the Lord speaking. This is the words of the Lord concerning false teaching. If you go to the church in Revelation 2, and 20, the church of Thyatira. Then he says again, he says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things that are against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which call herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things that are sacrificed to idols. Again, he is pointing out in the church that there was prophet, a prophetess by the name of Jezebel who was teaching and seducing the servants of the Lord. I want to tell you, friends, these things are not uh, things that are obsolete or have just been abandoned after the first century church. Because we now know we're living in the very last days, these things are now rampant, running through the church of Jesus Christ. Some things that are taking place in his name, uh, which you can very easily see in YouTube and so forth, these are the things that are destroying the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And as the words of Christ were as strong then, I believe these are the things that the Lord hates. Strong language, but He said it. He actually hates these things. And so He called the church to repent. Sardis was a church that had the name that was alive, but was a name that it lives, but actually it was dead. And He said to the church at Sardis, He says, I'll come like a thief unless you repent. And then we go to the church at Philadelphia. It was known to be a faithful church. And if you look at uh, verse uh, 10 there, uh, to the church at Philadelphia, chapter 2. Sorry, for chapter 3 and verse 10, the church at Philadelphia, and it says these words, this was a faithful church, and he says, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. That simply means that they have endured and persevered through the trials and the storms. Then he gives them a promise. Because you have kept my word, look at what he says, I promise you, I'm going to keep you too. It's amazing. In the storms and the trials and the buffeting and all that's happening, just hold on to the word and the word will hold on to you. He says he'll never let us go and he'll be faithful to us. And then we have the uh, infamous Laodicea church, which at that, at that time it was filled with materialism and no need of Christ. And we know that the Lord was on the outside knocking at the door to come in. You see through these uh, seven churches, those churches that we mentioned, the importance that the Lord puts on sound doctrine it's not what a church puts on sound doctrine. It's what the Lord places upon sound teaching. And the theme, if we go back over into Jude, um, is a warning re false teachers or false doctrine, but also it's a call for the church to contend, actually to contend, to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered uh, to the saints. It is actually a call to the body of Christ to contend for that which is the truth, to, to stand up, as the hymn writer says, to stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross, to actually stand for that which is true, not in, a, in an arrogant way, not in an angry way, but just to stand for those things which are true, which are solid, which are healthy, which are good instruction, Judah's actually right into the church. Listen, this is actually a call for us to earnestly contend for this faith, this faith, the faith that was once delivered onto the church. And we see there just in the opening, he says, Jude, he's a servant of Jesus Christ. And I, I just probably not going to get much further in, in this tonight as way of introduction, but uh, and we will move through it and go into it in a deeper way. But you know, I just was struck by his introduction. He says, I'm Jude. And before he says anything else about his qualifications, his abilities, or his titles, or who, what he was, he just says, I want you to know something. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Do you know there's nothing greater, nothing greater than this world just to be known tonight. I'm just a servant of God. We're all servants 
of this living God. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. Is there a greater, is there a greater description that can be said of you or I? Is there anything greater that you could honestly say that could describe you as an individual, as someone who's saved, who loves the Lord? I don't think there's anything greater in this world that could be so clear of really what we are as we are servants of God. That's what we are. We're servants of this living God. And you'll find, you know, that is how the apostles seen themselves to the body of Christ. James and James 1 and 1, he writes, James, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter writes in 2 Peter 1 and 1, Simon Peter says, I'm a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Titus 1, Paul, a servant of God. And you know, when we're saved and we're brought in to the kingdom of God, you know, the first thing to know is you are a servant of the living God. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, wherever you live or wherever you work, and as we come together as the body of Christ, we are the servants of this great almighty God. It's an amazing thing. The word servant simply means, uh, it's the diagonal, which simply means to be an attendant, to wait upon. Um, in its office sense, of course, you heard that Greek word there. It's the word deacon, but it's used 37 times in the New Testament, but it simply means to be a minister for the Lord. We're all ministers for him. We're his servants wherever we are. We're his ministers. And we, like Judah, are called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And the example of that, of course, is in Christ himself. He set forth the example. If you turn over into Matthew chapter 20 and verse 25, Matthew chapter 20 and verse 25, this is what the Lord says, Matthew 20, 25. Jesus called on to him and said, called them on to him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But he says, It shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister or let him be your servant. And whosoever will be chief among you, he says, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. The greatness of a believer or the depth of spirituality is not so much in titles or names or anything of those things or even our abilities. It's our, it's our serving of the body of Christ. To serve his body is what makes any man or woman great. To be the servant of the living God. And so Judas opening us up and saying to us, I'm a servant of God. I'm writing to you. And in my heart, I wanted to write to you about this, this, this great uh, salvation that we have received. 
And as I began to put pen to paper, if you like, to write about this, the Holy Ghost comes upon me. And he redirects everything about what I'm about to write about because there is something that is so pressed, so pressed upon me that I need to write to the body of Christ that we should earnestly contend for that faith that was once delivered unto the saints. There was an urgency in the letter. There was an urgency in the message. There was a warning in the message because things were happening in the body of Christ at that time that the Holy Spirit could see who is responsible for the preparation uh, for the purification and for the presentation of the, of the bride of Christ uh, to, the bride, to the bridegroom when he comes. The Holy Spirit could see the infiltration of these doctrines and false teachers that were being uh, infiltrating the church of Jesus Christ and stripping the church of her power and the presence of the Lord that was in the midst. And, and Jude doesn't hold back. He really, he really lays it out very clear what has taken place. It's that they've taken the most precious doctrine, one of the most precious doctrine to the church, the doctrine of grace. And many people know it's amazing grace. Isn't it an amazing grace? You know, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come, but it's grace. Grace led us this far. And praise the Lord, it's going to be grace that's going to take us on home. But to take a doctrine of grace, he says, know what they've done? They've turned that doctrine into lasciviousness. It's a frightening, frightening thing what has happened. Brothers and sisters, we are living in a day where all around us that this great, precious doctrine, is there anyone that doesn't appreciate grace? It's nearly if you say anything in a negative about grace that you don't know anything about grace. But there's not a more precious doctrine than the doctrine of grace. Are you glad for the, are you glad for the grace of God? I mean, where would any of us be in this room tonight without God's grace? But you see, the enemy's so subtle and false teachers are so subtle too because they take something that's so precious, so true, so real and they pollute that and they turn that doctrine. And friends, tonight that is what's happening all around us. The claims of the cross now, I can take anything, but if I do not balance that with other scriptures, I can make that something that it's not. Very, very simple. But when we take in the balance of scriptures, we bring forth the claims of the cross on our lives. Many people know that we're not our own, but we've been bought, not right, with a price. It's not true. Many people know that. We are to take up our cross when, how often, daily. But you'll know that these doctrines that are sliding into the church today, in a rapid pace, they remove the responsibility to live a life 
for the Lord and holiness, not legalism and holiness, to understand what the world is. What is the world? What is the world? The world has become a friend of the church. The world actually is an enemy. And so we see then the turning of this great doctrine to allow people to live as they please, as they want, without the claims of the cross. And it strips the church of her power. It strips the church of the presence. Let me tell you, friends, it doesn't matter what it looks like. And most of this today that has been turned is very much focused upon how you feel. You know, it really doesn't matter how I feel. If I went by feelings, if you went by feelings, there might only be three people here tonight. But it's faith. And they turn that precious doctrine into lasciviousness. And friends, we are told that we are to earnestly contend for this faith. Earnestly contend. That is just an introduction in some ways of where we are. And as we move through it, you'll know where we're going to go with it. But you know, I, I just believe it's important because it's the little book before the end. And I believe that's exactly where we are. We're just in this little time before this whole thing is wrapped up. And I believe that we stand for the Lord and earnestly contend for this faith, this precious faith. I believe God will bless us. He'll bless the people that stand. He'll bless us as we stand on the sound teaching of God's Word. And friends, we know, we know, we know that God Himself, God Himself, it doesn't matter what anyone says or what the world say or what any rising star says in the church scene or many hits they've got and many people follow them. Friends, I want to tell you, you want to get to those, those gates and you want to hear those words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. We've got a battle, but it's a battle we'll win. We'll stand on God's word. Let's pray together tonight.